Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On this show, more voices from the Real Path to Peace in Ukraine, a November 2022 conference that kicked off a new U.S. movement opposing the NATO proxy war against Russia in Ukraine. In Iraq, it's going to take 50, 60 years for people to start coming to terms with the illegal U.S. war against the Iraqi people. In Vietnam, United States used Ghastly chemical weapons, ghastly chemical weapons. You walk up and down the central region of Vietnam. They can't eat from that soil for generations. Wars are terrible. Wars are ugly. Nobody should be happy about war. That's why we say the only path is negotiations. Got to stop the noise. Got to stop the dust. Got to stop children being traumatized got to do everything possible to stop the war. Which war? Which war? Is it only the war in Ukraine? Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. For this hour, we will feature three more speakers at the Real Path to Peace in Ukraine conference, held November 19th, 2022 at the People's Forum in New York City, including well-known authors and activists, Code Pink co-founder, Medea Benjamin, Professor Noam Chomsky, and Director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, Vijay Prashad. The MC for the program was researcher and activist Manolo de los Santos. We are honored, we are excited, we're pumped, because... We have Vijay Prashad here in person. And usually if you've heard Vijay Prashad in person or even seen him on screen, there's no way you leave now wanting to move and to act and to build. Vijay, the stage is yours. Thanks. No war, but class war. No war, but class war. Only one kind of war is acceptable, class war. Isn't it great to be in the People's Forum? And to the entire staff of the People's Forum, and of course Manolo, We have to thank them. I mean, this is a beachhead in an outrageously wretched ruling class dominated world. You have to build from here, but you have to first secure this. If we didn't have this, we couldn't have this meeting. It's really important that we build institutions. We build infrastructure. We build the place where we stand and say we're not moving. Because it's from where you stand that you can walk. Because it is tense to have events like this. Particularly when very strange elements say that they're going to come and do violence or disrupt an event. It creates 
neurological tension for weeks. So make sure to recognize that they are carrying this for us. No war, but class war. Last night, my daughter Rosa and I went to see the new Black Panther movie. Now, it's an incredible movie. It's one of the best made films I've seen in a long time. Three hours long, it could have gone on for six hours. I mean, it was incredible. And I was really enjoying it, especially the moment when out of the water emerges this great Mayan god who comes out onto the beach and he proposes a historical alliance between the people of Wakanda, the free African Republic, most powerful country in the world, and this undersea Mayan kingdom, which has been able to resist the Colombian depredation of the Americas. They went undersea and developed a great civilization. The two vibranium powers of Wakanda and this great Mayan empire were going to come together. And he said, we'll crush, effectively, the imperialists. We'll crush them. We'll destroy them. It was so exciting. I, I couldn't wait for what was going to come next. I thought this is going to be the best film ever. And then the screenwriters lost their nerve. And then the screenwriters just couldn't take it to the next level. Because at that point, you see, the interesting thing is that the CIA character in the film is a hobbit. So, if you have the CIA character being a hobbit, it's really hard to dislike the CIA. <laughs> and he's the cute hobbit. You, you remember? And the director of the CIA is Elaine from Seinfeld. <laughs> I mean, how could you dislike Elaine from Seinfeld? You have a hobbit and you have Elaine as the CIA. And the guy who's the US ambassador to the UN playing with his glasses is the nice guy from House of Cards. He's a nice guy. And also he sort of looks like somebody's grandfather. He's kind of clueless in the movie. So suddenly the screenwriters lose their nerve and in come the Yanks. And the Yanks are really nice people, benevolent, because U.S. imperialism is benevolent. It's a hobbit, it's Elaine, and it's the grandpa figure. The villain must be the Mayan. So suddenly, this great Mayan king from under the, you know, under the Caribbean Sea comes up with a diabolical plan. He says to the Wakandans, and I don't really care if you haven't seen the film. <laughs> I am sort of ruining it for you. But let me tell you, it's a really good film. And my synopsis is really quite irrelevant because anyway, 
I'm so crazy, I probably saw the wrong film. I'm interpreting the film as erroneously as I obviously interpret reality. So the Wakandans, he says, this great Mayan king, the Wakandans either, they have a choice. They have actually George Bush's choice. Either you're with us or you're against us. He says to them, either you fight with us to destroy all the powers, aka the great anti-colonial alliance against imperialism, my great fantasy. I was thinking the movie is going to go again in that direction, despite The Hobbit, despite Elaine. Either you make this great anti-colonial alliance against the imperialists, or we'll attack you. Now, it's an unfortunate choice. And I very much doubt that the great Mayan kingdom from under the sea would demand this choice of their Wakandan comrades. I very much doubt this. But nonetheless, that's what the screenwriter had to do because they had to make the Mayan diabolical. Because the CIA is the Hobbit. And the Mayan has to be diabolical. So, well, obviously you know what happens. <laughs> you see, the Wakandans, who had lost the Black Panther, as you know, from the first film, could very well at that point have said, well, let's negotiate. Let's have a diplomatic dialogue. Let's have a discussion, a sit down. You know, when Noam Chomsky and I were writing the book, The Withdrawal, at one point in our conversation, he said, United States is like the mafia. He said, they're like the godfather. And right through our conversation, he kept referring to the U.S. government as the godfather. If you don't like what the U.S. government says and you don't agree to do what they say, they're going to whack you. The first time Noam said that to me, they're going to whack you, I, I had to start laughing because at the time Noam was, you know, the full Noam with a lot of beard and a lot of hair, little Gandalf the wizard Noam. And when he said, they're going to whack you, I, I started laughing. But I thought about that a lot. And of course, neither Noam Chomsky nor I have really, maybe he has, he, he knows everything about everything. But okay, speaking for myself, my entire understanding of the mafia comes from the movies. As you can see, most of my references are from films. So I know The Godfather, the three films, which I love a lot. And I, of course, know The Sopranos, which I think, you know, at least the first season was terrific, after which it sort of lost its way. And even in the mafia films, I say to Noam, they negotiate. They have the sit down. You know, people sit down and they talk and admittedly some of them bring guns under the table and they wipe out the opposition in the middle of the so-called negotiation. But at least they have the thing called the sit down. So in the film, unlike the US government, which doesn't do the sit down, in fact, as Brian has laid out so well, does the opposite of the sit down, accelerates war. The Wakandans could have asked for a sit down. But in fact, they didn't. Instead, they allowed a possibility of negotiations to be displaced and a war to be accelerated. A war which was, which was catastrophic for both the Wakandans and for the Mayans. And meanwhile, the Hobbit and Elaine and Biden 
are sitting back in the United States smiling. In fact, the Hobbit gets imprisoned, but that's a separate story. But you see how casually imperialist propaganda works. Here we have a film, a beautiful film with at one level a remarkable message about an independent people, a sovereign people on the African continent. An incredible message. The child of Lumumba. What a name to have chosen. It's an incredible story for people around the world. An independent African not happy with the kingdom part but you know let's just for our purposes call it a republic an independent sovereign republic on the african continent and then because you know how difficult it is to be sovereign in the americas if you're cuba for instance you get embargoed and you get sabotaged and assassination attempts and so on if you're venezuela you get an entire hybrid war strategy so the the screenwriters knew that in the americas the only way to be sovereign is to be underwater the only way to have a sovereign republic is deep underwater it's a remarkable film because you have these two sovereign territories one on the surface on the african continent one under underwater in the caribbean could make an alliance but they can't permit that you have to have them go to war and the benevolent imperialists can smile from the sidelines you see what the united states will never permit is countries to have sovereignty and to have independence and to provide a dignified life for their people they won't permit it in films they don't permit it in real life now look at it quite simply this is not a war really just about ukraine it's not a war merely about ukraine i mean i feel for all people who are in war i've covered war i know how ugly it is i remember the iraq war i remember how ugly that war was i remember the devastation done to baghdad the use of depleted uranium in fallujah i remember the war in libya a country that i have been going back to for years the destruction of that country by nato i remember those wars i saw those wars they are ugly all wars are terribly ugly this war is terribly ugly it may not be as ugly as the iraq war as noam said they are using different kinds of mechanisms but it's ugly nonetheless it's ugly it's noisy wars are very noisy they traumatize children wars are dirty they're dusty they destroy the landscape it takes a lot to recover from the war not just physically but mentally and emotionally people scarred for generations in iraq it's going to take 50 60 years for people to start coming to terms with the illegal us war against the iraqi people in vietnam united states used ghastly chemical weapons ghastly chemical weapons you walk up and down the central region of vietnam they can't eat from that soil for generations wars are terrible wars are ugly nobody should be happy about war that's why we say the only path is negotiations got to stop the noise got to stop the dust 
got to stop children being traumatized it's as simple as that it's not complicated got to do everything possible to stop the war which war which war is it only the war in ukraine who remembers who remembers and i say the word remember even though it's a contemporary phenomena i say the word remember because this has been going on since the 90s there is a war that has been going on in the great lakes region of africa since the 1990s the war against the people in the eastern section of the democratic republic of congo now once again pressure from western warrior states pushing kenya uganda to invade eastern drc to join the rwandan illegal rebel force called m23 where is the concern about that war maybe 30 million people have died in the great lakes war since the early 1990s i reported the war in northern mozambique in cabo delgado anybody care about that war nobody knows what the flag of mozambique is like in cabo delgado people rose up because two energy companies exxon mobil and total are extracting natural gas off their coastline they can see the rig but it's the poorest part of mozambique when the people rose up in cabo delgado mozambique sent its army in couldn't defeat them mozambique asked for help the french government said we would like to intervene directly don't want to do it too much bad publicity so the french government effectively made a deal with rwanda so that rwandan troops entered cabo delgado silence silence africans die nobody gives a shit. silence where are those people online who are so upset that we're meeting here today where are they when africans are slaughtered so that copper coltan all the various components metals and minerals that go into your smartphones into the computers where are they where is the outrage about that where is that outrage where is that anger no war no war but class war no war no war but class war no war anywhere not just in ukraine and you know why does this war happen even in ukraine again it's not just about ukraine over the course of the last 20 years a process of integration has been taking place a historical process of integration that has been taking place for the first time since the ancient world and that's the integration of europe and asia contiguous land mass historical integration of eurasia it took place partly because of the stupidities of us imperialism because let's face it friends not only is us imperialism stupid it's also managed by incredibly mediocre people and one of them is antony blinken one of them is antony blinken antony blinken is a extremely mediocre person they try to build him up as some kind of intellectual 
of diplomacy because he speaks French. <laughs> what kind of intelligence does it take to prosecute wars? It's not an intelligent act. The United States prosecuted three wars. One against the people of Iraq, illegal. Second against the people of Libya, catastrophic. And third against the people of Iran, absolutely unnecessary. These three conflicts meant that Europe no longer had easy access to energy from Libya, Iran and Iraq, which is why Europe became more dependent on energy from Russia. That was one part of the integration. Secondly, this bizarre political and economic system called capitalism. Bizarre. It allows a few people to take an enormous part of the social wealth and pocket it. And these people, the ones in Wall Street, the city of London and so on, don't want to invest that money anywhere. They want to keep their trillions of dollars in illicit tax havens or in their own pet projects like buying Twitter. They're not interested in genuine investment. Europe, which used to rely on foreign direct investment coming from the United States and other places, saw after the financial crisis the disappearance of private portfolio capital from places like the United States, from Canada and so on. Except mining companies that like to domicile in the city of London, which is effectively a tax haven and secretive. So who came with investment? The Chinese, the Indians, but mainly the Chinese. Large Chinese investments in Europe, integrating Eurasia. That integration of Eurasia, my friends, is not only historical, it is also the actual process of history. Because whatever the US does, it can only either delay that integration or it can damage it but it can never stop it. It can never stop it. The integration of Eurasia is just going to happen. And the United States has to come to terms with it. But the US government is refusing to come to terms with it. Now somebody will say to me, oh, you want to sell out Europe to the Chinese and the Russians and so on. No, it's not a decision I'm going to make. This has nothing to do with me. I'm not even giving you my opinion. I haven't actually given you any opinions of mine except about Black Panther. <laughs> Everything I'm saying to you is the actual process of history. That's what happened. Integration has been taking place. It has scared the US ruling class because it's meant that the European countries, which were tethered by an undersea cable in this Atlantic alliance with the United States and Canada, that Europe started to drift away from the Atlantic Ocean and move towards the Eurasian landmass into its old normal connections, which are ancient and had been blocked by the period of colonialism, blocked by the Cold War and blocked by the post-Cold War dispensation. That integration has been happening. It is inevitable. It's going to keep happening. United States, terrified by that, says that Russia must be weakened. 
and that China must be weakened as well. If you read the national security strategy of the US government, they openly say all measures must be taken to confront China, which is the leading competitor of the United States. You see, from Obama onward, there was an attempt to just talk tough with China. We're going to get you. We're going to break you. We're going to stop Huawei. We're going to prevent you from doing this, prevent you from doing that. The gangster, the godfather, the mafia. You're not going to listen to us. We're going to whack you. Nancy Pelosi, so brave. She's going to fly into Taiwan. <laughs> brave. She's going to fly into Taiwan, guys. Talk trash about Xi Jinping. Justin Trudeau talking trash about Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping comes up to him and says, hey, listen, you know, don't leak things that we talk about in private. Did you watch that clip? Yeah. Don't, don't, just don't behave like that. And then Justin Trudeau. <laughs> did, you, did, you see, did you see the way he walked off? Sort of. Because countries like China, and they're not all countries of the left, countries like India, countries that, they don't, they don't want to take this anymore. They don't want to be lectured at by, you know, mediocrities. You know, Justin Trudeau. Who's Justin Trudeau? Blackface, remember? Racist, blackface. What kind of person is Justin Trudeau slinking away, no guts? Biden doesn't know his left from his right. Sleepwalking into nuclear Armageddon. What kind of people are these? Even Narendra Modi. Enough said about Narendra Modi. <laughs> and I, I have said a lot about Mr. Modi and it's got me into a lot of trouble from Mr. Modi. <laughs> You know, neo-fascist leader, even somebody like him as a foreign minister who says, did you hear the foreign minister of India was accused, said, stop buying oil from Russia. And he said, let me just tell you some things. I've been looking into this, he said very calmly. And he said, you know, what India buys from Russia in oil in a month, he said, Europe buys in an afternoon. Think about it. I mean, effectively, the foreign minister of a neo-fascist government in India is telling the United States media, not today, colonizer. Not today, colonizer. This historical integration is just going to happen. You can't stop it. One of the reasons you need to build a massive peace movement, not only in the United States, but in all the Western warrior states, including Canada, one of the reasons to build this massive peace movement is not that you come out in support of those people out there or these people out here. It's because you have to join a global movement. The mood is changing, friends. People are not interested in this anymore. You've got a handful of white politicians meeting at the NATO meeting a handful of white politicians meeting at the NATO meeting talking about global NATO. Nobody's interested in them. Nobody takes these people seriously. They are not respected. What's the name of the guy who runs NATO? Who cares? What's the name of the current CIA head? Who cares? You know what? 
I don't need to know the names of these people. I want to abolish NATO. I want to abolish NATO. I want to abolish NATO and I want to abolish the CIA. In fact, in fact it's for me, you see for me, I understand, you know, that there's need to change the budget and move the 1 trillion dollars and so on. But my provisional demand is abolish the CIA. That's just a start. Abolish the CIA. What has the CIA ever done that's been good? Overthrow the government in Guatemala. Overthrow the government in Iran. Overthrow the government in Chile. Overthrow the government in Honduras. Overthrow the government in Bolivia. What has the CIA ever done that's been good? What have they done that's been good? And I even, I'm not sure that it's good for the ruling class. Unless the ruling class likes to see greater and greater instability. And unless the ruling class is actually looking forward to nuclear Armageddon. And they might be. You see, they're crazy enough. If the ruling class can be measured by the intelligence of Elon Musk. If the ruling class can be measured by the intelligence of Elon Musk, God forbid. You know, I'm that old kind of Marxist that likes to believe the capitalist class has a rationality. And it might as a class have rationality. But the individual capitalists are idiots. As a class, they might have a great rationality. But as individuals, they're terrifying. No war, but class war. No war, but class war. No war, but class war. That was Vijay Prashad, journalist, historian, and director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He was speaking at the conference, The Real Path to Peace in Ukraine. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. And for this hour, we are presenting more voices from that conference. Up next, Medea Benjamin and Noam Chomsky. Stay with us. definitely have a collective responsibility to remember and to build and to act and to mobilize and to organize because we will not allow those war criminals in Washington with their crocodile tears acting like they care about the Ukrainian people when we know very well that they're actually willing to sacrifice 
every Ukrainian alive in order to accomplish their war against Russia. Let us not be confused. We now want to present, joining us online, a dear friend, a friend of the People's Forum, but I say a friend of all peace activists around the world, Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, along with Jody Evans, and a longtime activist against U.S. imperialism. Be with you all today. I'm sorry I'm not there in person for this very important meeting. I'd like to talk about some uh, issues of the U.S. politics right now and how topsy-turvy everything is, how confusing it is, how hard it is to wrap our head around the political scene about Ukraine. For example, let's look at the fact that the most cautious people in the Biden administration right now are not the civilians, they are the military. The military, like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, who said that the Ukrainians have gotten about all they're going to be able to get. There's a stalemate. They should seize the moment and go to negotiations. Uh, then there are the really hawkish members of the Biden administration, like President Biden himself, uh, like the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who instead of talking about negotiations, has been traveling around the world trying to uh, gin up more weapons for Ukraine. Uh, they have not talked to their counterparts about trying to stop this war. And they seem to be pushing the illusion that the Ukrainians can get back every inch of territory that the Russians occupy, including all of Donbass and all of Crimea, and that they should fight to the last Ukrainian to get that. And then you have the political parties. On the one hand, you have the Democratic Party, where when the $40 billion was passed for Ukraine, not one Democrat stood up to question it. And you have another $37 billion that the administration has asked for and will probably be voted on very soon. And I think we can take bets that not one Democrat will stand up against that massive amount of money uh, for Ukraine. But we also have the issue of the Democrats, the 30 of them who signed on to this very, very modest letter saying, thank you so much, Biden, for all the help you have given Ukraine. And we in Congress have uh, given all of this economic and military aid. And now we should pair that with negotiations. An extremely mild letter. Only 30 Democrats signed on. And as soon as they did, all hell broke loose. And with, within 24 hours, they had either removed their names from the letter uh, or the letter after it had been signed, sealed and delivered to President Biden was then withdrawn. Quite a remarkable blowback against people who were merely calling for negotiations from the Democratic Party side. In the meantime, on the Republican side, while most of the Republicans are indeed the hawks they always are, like Mitch McConnell in the Senate calling for more and more weapons to Ukraine, there is an element of the Republican Party, mostly on the extreme right wing, who voted against the $40 billion, who complained about the U.S. war in Ukraine and this uh, never-ending unwinnable war, and who said that they were feeling pressure from their base. Uh, 
uh, to vote against that enormous tranche of money. It's not only some of the more uh, extreme members of the Congress, uh, it's also people like Donald Trump who have been going around in his rallies and on social media. And then when he announced that he was running for president, uh, saying things like, this can end up in a nuclear war in which all of humanity will be annihilated. We've got to sit down on the table. I could be the negotiator. If I were in office, this war would never have happened because I would have talked to Putin. And it's important to understand that Donald Trump is a savvy politician, that he puts his finger up in the air, sees which way the wind is blowing, and then moves in that direction. So obviously, there is a lot of sentiment out there that this war is not in the national interests of the American people. Uh, So uh, you see the uh, right wing and the, the Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson from Fox being the ones who are today the peacemakers, where the party of war is clearly uh, the Democratic Party. Of course, let's not say that the part, Republicans are a peace party, but the certain elements of the Republican Party are understanding uh, that this war cannot be won on the battleground. And so where does that put us today? I think it puts us uh, right where we know we need to be, which is we don't have a movement that is strong enough to push both of the parties uh, and to push the Biden administration into the right position. And that's why today's meeting is so important. That's why it's so important to gather up our forces and to extend them to get the people in the environmental movement to recognize that this war has only led to the production of more dirty energy, giving a green light to the oil, the gas, the coal, the nuclear power producers uh, to say uh, that we have to make up for the sanctioning of Russian energy and uh, produce more dirty energy that U.S. companies will benefit from. We have to get the environmental movement to work with us to say that this war and all wars are so destructive of the environment and they have to stand with us for peace. Uh, We also are calling on the faith-based movement to say war is immoral, all wars are immoral, and they need to come with us and call for a Christmas truce like happened during World War I. Uh, So we are calling on faith-based leaders around this country to join the Pope who has said uh, we must get all sides to the table. And of course, people who are working for things like healthcare for all in the United States, uh, a free college education, all of those people have to recognize that as we are going to spend over $100 billion in less than a year on this war, uh, we must make people understand that that money could be going for needs at home and, of course, could be going to address the climate challenge that really threatens our entire future uh, as a planet. We now want to welcome someone who, when I first joined the anti-war movement, was a big reference. He was one of the few anti-war intellectuals who could clearly define and denounce imperialism for what it was. A man who has often been ridiculed and attacked by the ruling elites, yet is loved by the masses of people around the world. 
And that is our dear friend and comrade, Noam Chomsky. Let's start with a truism. A war can end in one of two ways. One way is that one side surrenders, the other sets the terms of surrender. Way, there's a negotiated settlement. That's one truism. Let's turn to a second truism. In a negotiated settlement, neither side achieves its maximal goals. Each side agrees to live with it as the best of existing alternatives. These observations seem simple enough, but they actually merit some thought. Let's take a look at U.S. policy, openly, repeatedly announced, no ambiguity. Continue the war in order to severely weaken Russia, so severely that it will not be able to undertake aggression again. Well, let's think what that means. Take it literally, which is, I presume, how Russia understands it. Literally, it means U.S. policy is to impose conditions on defeated Russia which are even harsher than those imposed on Germany at Versailles a century ago. Those weren't harsh enough. They didn't prevent German aggression. You can think what that means and how any Russian leaders would interpret it. The U.S. policy is adopted almost reflexively by the United Kingdom and with various kinds of wavering by the NATO leadership generally. Well, all of this has consequences. One consequence is plainly bars negotiations. There is actually an official argument supporting this stance. It's that the war should go on until Ukraine is in a better bargaining position. Of course, there's an option left understood, unsaid but understood, maybe in a worse bargaining position. Well, this stance, you don't say that, of course. This stance reflects nothing more than a commitment to continuing the war as long as it benefits the United States by weakening Russia severely and establishing the U.S. more firmly as the world-dominant power. Well, by now it's also openly recognized uh, that continuing the war provides a valuable opportunity for the United States and its allies to test new equipment and advanced techniques of war fighting about which they're very proud. Uh, also unsaid is that these plans are based on a ghastly gamble. So the hope that if Putin is defeated, he'll pack up his bags, quietly slink away to oblivion, maybe worse. The gamble that he won't resort to the conventional weapons 
that everyone agrees he has to devastate Ukraine with consequences that are all too easy to imagine. It's conventional weapons. We should bear in mind that almost all the talk about nuclear weapons is in the West. Russia has occasionally enunciated the standard doctrine of nuclear powers if its survival is threatened might resort to nuclear weapons. Uh, the United States actually has a far more expansive doctrine. That's an important matter, but I'll put it aside here. Looking, continuing with the facts, uh, U.S. and U.K. military analysts anticipated in advance of the invasion that Russia would find their kind of war. Uh, the U.S. British kind of war style of their ally, Israel against defenseless Gaza, is to go at once for the jugular, shock and awe, at once destroy communications, energy, water supplies, sewage treatment, transportation, anything that keeps a society function, functioning. Russia didn't do that much to the surprise of U.S. and British analysts. The ghastly gamble is that Russia won't descend to the U.S.-U.K. style of war. That gamble is already beginning to fail. Putin has recently begun to imitate the warrior states of the West. His recent attacks on Kiev Targets have been bitterly condemned, rightly so, condemned by people who had little or no objection when their side carried out the atrocities on a much greater scale, in fact. But let's put hypocrisy aside. The matter is the ghastly gamble, the willingness to gamble that Russia will accept defeat passively and not react in the manner of the Western warrior states. That's the clear and explicit meaning of the official policy of continuing the war in order to severely weaken Russia. These are all virtual truisms. Let's look then at some facts. Russia's criminal invasion of Ukraine is taking a terrible toll. The longer it continues, the more severe the toll. Ukraine, of course, is the primary victim, but the impact reaches far beyond. It includes millions facing starvation in countries relying on grain and fertilizer from the region, and also fuel that's being diverted to Europe and the rich countries. It includes the whole world facing the possibility that a confrontation between the world's two huge nuclear powers will drift out of control, leading to terminal war. It's all too easy to sketch plausible scenarios. Actually, we just witnessed one of the many possibilities a couple of days ago when a Ukrainian anti-aircraft missile 
accidentally hit Polish territory. Next time, it could be a Russian missile attacking supply lines to Ukraine, as the Western warrior states would not hesitate to do in comparable circumstances. And just to be honest, comparable circumstances are unimaginable because far short of that, they would have resorted to far more extreme violence. Well, another grim consequence of the perpetuation of the conflict is reversal of the limited efforts to deal with the most severe crisis that has ever arisen in human history. The destruction of the environment that sustains life. Be no need to elaborate on the severity of the threat. Anyone with eyes open understands that we have a narrow window in which we can carry out measures to avert an indescribable catastrophe. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has partially closed that narrow window. It has led to sharp increase in fossil fuel production. Cut off from cheap Russian gas, it's now importing vast amounts of far more expensive, far more polluting, liquefied natural gas from the chief producers of this lethal substance. U.S. in the lead. They're pricing poorer countries out of the market with terrible impact. Sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline locks this destructive system in place. And interestingly, that sabotage is another topic we're not permitted to talk about in free societies because of what we'd immediately conclude. New investments are being made in flint fields that can be exploited for decades in for fossil fuel production. Profits of the fossil fuel companies are exploding about as fast as those for weapons producers as new prospects open for destroying human life on Earth. The euphoria in executive offices is unconstrained as they propel us to the final precipice. The longer the war continues, the greater will be the toll, reaching perhaps to the end of organized human life. Speak of the vast number of species we are wantonly destroying. That, of course, is assuming that we can ward off the option of destroying ourselves more expeditiously with nuclear war. It's a possibility that is now being casually discussed as if it were an option. It's an indescribable descent to a state beyond insanity. Well, I'm sorry if these remarks seem hyperbolic. They're not. All of this tells us that every possible path to a diplomatic settlement should be pursued in accord with the wishes of almost the entire world, including the core of Europe, 
including, for example, three quarters of the population of Germany. I won't run through the record. Prior to the invasion, there were opportunities for diplomatic settlement within the general framework of the Minsk agreements. As recently as last April, Ukraine-Russia negotiations were proceeding under Turkish auspices. The two Western warrior states, US and Britain, both registered opposition to them. Interest in diplomacy is so limited that there's almost no coverage. So we do not know how significant a factor this was in the collapse of the negotiations. As the conflict persists, positions harden, the options for diplomacy narrow, the ghastly gamble becomes even more ominous. There is no time for delay. Thank you, Noam. Excellent message from Noam Chomsky. We cannot continue to wait as the threat of nuclear war looms over humanity. As we speak, U.S. nuclear bombers stationed in Europe are somehow a notices away from pulverizing their so-called Russian enemy. At the same time, as we speak, 345 million people around the planet face hunger. This number increased from 222 million just since March. In this ghastly gamble of what Noam Chomsky speaks about, who is it that the U.S. ruling class is willing to sacrifice? They constantly talk about sacrifice. Biden says the American people are willing to sacrifice in order to support this war in Ukraine. The problem is, are we actually going to let him sacrifice the planet? No. Are we going to allow them to sacrifice the Ukrainian people? No. Are we going to allow them to sacrifice the people of Africa, Asia, and Latin America? No. We refuse in the name of peace. And that's it for today's show. We just heard from Professor Noam Chomsky. Before him, Code Pink, co-founder Medea Benjamin. And we started the hour with journalist and historian Vijay Prashad. All three were speakers at the conference, The Real Path to Peace in Ukraine, held November 19th, 2022 at the People's Forum in New York City, sponsored by the People's Forum and the Answer Coalition. The MC for the program was researcher and activist Manolo de los Santos. More information is at answercoalition.org. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Averam. Our website and archive of all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and I'll also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Averam. Special thank you to our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. The music we play this hour included Don't Stop, 
written by Christine McVie when she was keyboardist and hit maker for the British American rock band Fleetwood Mac. McVie died Wednesday, November 30th, 2022, after a brief illness. Our theme music for the show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Here in the last month of the year, I want to especially thank our Patreon supporters at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show for your support. If you would like to support the show, if you rely on it, love the show, but you haven't yet signed up, please go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show to sign up to be a subscriber for as little as three dollars a month. You can also do a one-time donation there and donations there as well as on PayPal or any other way you give are all tax deductible. We are not-for-profit organization, totally grassroots, independent funded. I'm not paid by any station or Pacifica or anybody. And so we really do rely on your support to produce the show. And also, people who do year-end giving, again, your donations are tax-deductible, and um, you can go to the website on thegroundshow.org for all the ways you can give on PayPal, the address if you want to send a check. So just giving that push during December to uh, encourage everyone to support the show. I so appreciate it. <laughs>